Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Morning, and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes. And for the next few minutes, please stay with me. As usual, it's going to be some motivation, some inspiration, some education, and we'll all do it without any manipulation. We'll do every bit of that. No manipulation. No hidden agendas. We're not going to try to coerce you into doing anything. We're not going to solicit money. We're not going to ask you to join anything. We're simply going to give you accurate information. And that information is designed to help you verify as well as identify the plan of God for your life. That's right. It is a show about God. It's a show about the Bible, but maybe not one like you've heard before. A little different approach here. Because our job is not to rant and rave and yell and scream, but to give you specific procedures, specific promises that are found in the Bible so that you can have a flot line in your soul. Flot, F-L-O-T. That stands for forward line of troops, and that's a military analogy. What we're doing We're using a military analogy to say that you can build a strong main line of resistance in your soul. And if you will learn God's Word, specifically 10 problem-solving devices that we teach on this show, then that main line of resistance, called a flat line, it will stop the outside sources of adversity before they become the inside sources of stress. That's why we always say adversity is inevitable, stress is optional, because Adversity may be what circumstances do to you, but stress, well, that's what you do to yourself. And the Christian life is a life free of stress. No worry, no fear, no hatred, no bitterness, no antagonism. That is not the Christian life. That's the energy of the flesh, the old sin nature. So my job is to get on this radio program and give you some accurate information. Your job, should you decide to take it, Sounds like Mission Impossible, doesn't it? <laughs> Your job, should you design to take it, is desire to take it, is to believe what I'm teaching you and apply it into your life. You know, this is a secret to the Christian life. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said happiness belongs to those people who hear my Father's word and keep it. Application and keep it. That's the whole deal. You know, we hear stuff, but we don't always keep stuff. And when it comes to the Bible, understanding the Bible, understanding God's plan, hearing and keeping is essential for you. Because if you just hear it, it, sure it becomes knowledge, but not the kind of knowledge that translates into wisdom. It's just sort of an earthly knowledge, just an academic book knowledge. But if you hear it and believe it and apply it into your life by means of God's Holy Spirit, then it becomes a weapon. Then it becomes wisdom. Wisdom is a weapon for you. It is a weapon to protect you. It's a weapon to give you insight into what the world is trying to lure you with or seduce you with. When you have that weapon of wisdom, well, there's a phenomenal way to live. And it all starts with learning God's Word. That's why in the Bible you will find this passage, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. And so God asks you to study. He asks you to grow. The Bible says grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's two mandates from the Bible right there. And that's what these are for you about. 
So if you've been listening, let me tell you a few things about the flight line. We are going into 10th year now broadcasting across this country, and we're expanding. We're hoping to go into some other major cities very soon, but you can always go to our our website, which is simply rickhughesministries.org. rickhughesministries.org. And there you can see a list of the radio shows, when they play, what city they're in, and also you can hear the shows. We have them all categorized. We have them all by year, and you can click on them and listen to them, even on your mobile device like your cell phone or your iPad or whatever you may have. It'll play on that as well if you just type in Rick Hughes Ministries, and you can get right to it. These are designed to give you 30 minutes of accurate information. But keep in mind, please, I'm not a pastor. I'm not pretending to be a pastor. My job is to direct you to a well-qualified pastor. My job is to maybe help you see why it's essential that you get under a well-qualified pastor because that man is going to be the man that shepherds your soul. We are sheep. You, me, we are the sheep, and we need a shepherd. And the pastor-teacher of our local church is the shepherd. It's his job, the responsibility God gave him, to watch over us, to care for us, to feed us, to nurture us. And uh, and so I don't know if you have a well-qualified shepherd. I really don't know where you go to church. Um, but I would tell you this, that he's one of the most important people in your life. And therefore, when Satan wants to make an attack on you, you can bet one thing, he's going to attack your pastor. He's going to do everything that he can to destroy your pastor. As a matter of fact, uh, if I were Satan, this is an analogy here, what would I do to destroy a church? I thought about that the other day. I thought, you know, what exactly is Satan's approach? If I was Satan, what would I do? And I want to give you some things that I think Satan does to destroy churches. And I want you to answer the question if you see this going on in your church. Because remember that you as an individual are representative of Jesus Christ, and your job is to represent him. But your church, your local church, that's the representative body of Christ to the community and to the neighborhood. So they represent Christ in the church, and you represent Christ in your physical body, in the way that you think. You become Christ-like in what you think. And that's why the Bible says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. You have to learn to think like he thought. And how did he think? Well, the Bible again says, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself. Humility. Our Lord and Savior, when he walked on this earth, had a humility profile. And that's the key for you. That's the key for me. We must understand God makes war with the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. And humility doesn't mean that we walk around round-shouldered and our eyes down, never looking up and acting, oh, very humble. Humility means we orient to authority, we adjust to authority, we don't react to bad situations, we respond rather than react to situations. And when you have this type of humility, this is what God is looking for. A man that God can use must have some humility, or a woman that God can use. So Satan, in order to short-circuit all of this information, If you're involved in a local church, the first thing he's going to try to do is destroy that church, and you probably have seen that happen in several churches. 
And so the first thing necessary is to get the congregation to doubt the leadership of the pastor, to doubt his ability to lead. You know, being a pastor does not imply the existence of leadership. Just because he's a pastor doesn't mean that he's a great leader. It's about the gift, not the popularity of the person. And so first of all, you need to understand something. The pastor doesn't have to be the most popular person in the city. He's not out to win a popularity contest. He's out to accurately teach God's Word. That's all his job is. Now, you may like him, and he may have a pleasing personality, or he may not have a pleasing personality. But if you go to war with him because you don't like his personality, you're totally out of line. A lot of people buck leadership. You know why they do that? Because an old sin nature like you and I have, we have a sin nature. It does not like to be led. You know that, don't you? You don't like people telling you what to do. As a matter of fact, when it comes down to denominational churches, pastors are run off yearly from different churches, different denominations. And sometimes because some pastor takes some church where the congregation doesn't want to be told they're wrong and maybe this someone in the church has a lot of power and so they run one off and hire another one that'll give them what they want to hear. If you're that pastor and you've been run off, God bless you. Good thing you left that place. They'll figure it out someday. If not, they'll just go up in flames. But a good leader, great leadership, is always demonstrated in a great crisis. And it's true that a, that a really great pastor must face a great threat at least once in his ministry to see how he comes out and see how he handles it. It's what, it's what refines him. Even Paul was accused of sedition in Acts 24, verse 6. I'm reading now from Acts 24, 6. He even tried to profane the temple, the Pharisees said. And we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our laws. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him away from us. That's the testimony of Ananias before Felix, the governor. You see, Paul had gone into the temple and had shaved his head and taken a Nazarite vow, which was probably a mistake, because there he would have had to sacrifice a lamb. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not judging Paul, but I'm saying, why would you need to go back and sacrifice a lamb when the Lamb of God had already been sacrificed? But there arose a great a disturbance outside the temple when they accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And uh, Paul's buddies shut him out, locked the doors, and wouldn't let him back in, and all the crowd descended on him. So this is what they're talking about. Ever since Paul was converted, ever since on, on the road and Paul saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and was converted, once he began to preach the gospel, then many, many attempts were made to kill him. This is what pastors face, a great crisis in their ministry, a great crisis in their life. It can be from their spouse. It can be from their children. It can be from members of the congregation. And what makes a pastor great is how he handles the crisis. Does he respond with forgiveness and insight and wisdom, or does he react with emotionalism and bitterness and hatred? The result of great leadership in a local church always is motivation, being motivated to serve God. Our motivation should be found in 1 John 5, 3. Listen to this. This is where it comes from. 
If you love me, obey me. There's your motivation. Do you love God? And you say, yes, I do love God. Then he says, okay, if you love me, obey me. And he said, my mandates are not hard. They're not grievous. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? You know, that may be true in your life. Personal love for your pastor is a motivation that stems from his faithfulness to sacrifice his life to studying and teaching God's word to you. That's what makes you hold him in esteem. That's what makes you appreciate him, that he sticks his neck out on the line and teaches God's word. And that's his priority. The Bible says that all leaders, including pastors, and all followers, we all have the same mandate. I told you earlier what it was, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he might promote you at the proper time. A humility profile is critical for any one of us who wants to glorify God to the maximum in our life. When it comes to the pastor, the leadership in the pulpit, the leadership that he gives from that pulpit towards believers that makes a difference in a hopeless situation so that there will be eventually a rise in fundamental doctrine and that we will always have the Word of God and the accurate teaching of the Word of God by those men who have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. It's that leadership that's critical, and it's the leadership we're missing in America today. We must have men that will teach God's Word, and more than a couple, and we must have men that understand grace and are not out to market their message. Marketing the message is not the plan. Any pastor that has to market the message, and he said, well, I, I think God wants me to write this book, and uh, I'm going to write it, and you can buy it for 19.95. No, the Word of God is never for sale. Paul made that very clear. If you believe God led you to write a book, then give it away. You got it free, you give it away free. But we've gotten into Christian marketing today, and I think it's really bad, if you ask me. Personality arrogance. In a pastor is when he uses his personality to dominate weak people within the church in order to be manipulative, in order to lead the group. You see, a weak pastor can manipulate the congregation, but he can never motivate them to reach spiritual maturity. He can't teach the Word of God long enough to do that. But manipulation and domination often come from establishing personal contacts, becoming friends based on mutual interest. Consider the pastor who might even be your pastor, and he is a multi-level salesman selling something out of the back of his car, out of the back of his home, to meant to people in his congregation. God doesn't ordain anything like that. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5, Paul talks about the conflict at the church at Corinth, and he said, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. You see, pastors have people conflict, people problems. And the event Paul's referring to in this verse centers around a certain person in Corinth. And uh, that person, some people think he's the man Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. If you haven't read that, you probably should. It might embarrass you because it talks about a deviant sexual impulse that a man had. 
But looking at the thoughts from others that are much smarter than me, like John Valvert or Roy Zuck in their book, Bible Knowledge Commentary of the New Testament, they suggest that someone challenged Paul's authority as an apostle when he went to visit Corinth, and that this caused him a tremendous distraction and even prompted him to cancel a second visit and instead write a letter. And that's called the lost letter. It never made it into the canon of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, it appears the Corinthian believers had responded to Paul's suggestion and forgave this man that caused this problem and accused Paul of not being an apostle, lest Satan use it as a wedge. You see, Satan loves to drive a wedge in the church, and the wedge can be one person that opposes the pastor. Once he opposes the pastor and begins to shoot his mouth off and run his mouth off about the authority of the pastor, then he has set himself up for disaster. Paul said in 2 Corinthians seven twelve. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, that was Paul, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear obvious. In other words, you know, Paul was more concerned about how it affected the people in the church than how it affected him personally. So they had to restore fellowship. Why? So Satan could not use that incident to drive a wedge between the church and the Apostle Paul. You know, like coaches on a high school team, pastors face constant criticism, constant interference from parents, from those who think they know what's best. But unlike a coach, I'm just going to warn you right up front, if you mess with a pastor, you're messing with God's man and you're not going to like the results. It's going to be bad news for you. So pastors must not allow themselves to be manipulated nor maligned by those in the congregation because pastor teachers are like the men who bore the colors in the Civil War. The color guard, the men who bore the colors, those sharpshooters aim for them first so they could cause confusion in the ranks. And the pastor is carrying the colors and so who do you think Satan's going to aim at first? Listen to this illustration of the 24th Infantry Brigade called the Iron Brigade. It was the first infantry engaged at the Battle of Gettysburg. And it carried into battle only a state flag, which was presented to the regiment by the citizens of Detroit. This was carried by color bearer Abel G. Peck a tall, straight, handsome man and as brave a soldier as ever who gave up his life for his country. When Wagner fell, Colonel Henry Morrill took the flag and gallantly attempted to rally the few survivors of the 24th Infantry, but William Kelly took the flag from him and insisted on carrying it, telling Colonel Morrill, you shall not carry the flag while I'm alive. The gallant fellow held it aloft and almost instantly was shot through the heart. Private L. Spaulding then took up the flag from the hands of Kelly and carried it until he was himself badly wounded. And then Colonel Morrill again seized the flag and soon after was shot in the head and carried from the field. After the fall of Colonel Morrill, the flag was carried by a soldier whose name has never been ascertained, but he was seen by Captain Edwards of that group and Captain Edwards was now in command of the regiment. Lying upon the ground, badly wounded, grasping the flag in his hand, Captain Edwards took the flag from him 
and carried himself until the few men left of the regiment fell back and retreated to Culp's Hill. Edwards is the only man who is known to carry that flag that day, the only man who was not killed and who was not wounded. So when a pastor holds up the colors of Bible doctrine, he's the first man to be shot at. And I assure you that Satan has excellent sharpshooters. You know, sometimes the pastor may get fragged from members of his own congregation. That's when, in the military, being fragged is when maybe an officer is, a grenade is thrown into the, by his own men. His own men throw a grenade at him and try to kill him. It's fragging an officer. Sometimes the pastor can be fragged by members of the congregation. And that's why Paul told Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Then he mentions a couple of guys that did try to frag him, Hymenaeus and Philetus. In 2 Timothy 2.17, they're the sort who strayed from the truth. And what did they do? They claimed the resurrection was over. And as a result of that, they shipwrecked the faith of some. So this is one of Satan's policies, to get the congregation to doubt the authority of the pastor. Another aim that he has is to deflect the responsibility of the congregation rather than reflect the life of Christ. If he can deflect the responsibility of the congregation rather than reflect the life of Christ. To deflect means to turn aside or change directions or get sidetracked to divert, redirect, you know, build more buildings, let's go on a crusade, let's straighten out the devil's world. He lusts for you to get into all that sort of stuff so that you don't do what you should do, which is reflect the life of Christ. One of the enemy's strategy, that's satanic strategies, is to cause believers to focus on the failure of other people and not focus on their own failures. And Paul wrote about this in Romans 2, verse 1, where he said, you're inexcusable. Oh man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you are condemning yourself, and those of you who judge practice the same things. God does not authorize you to be a judge. He is the only judge. He is the only perfect righteousness and perfect justice. Not you, not me. He didn't send us to judge anybody. When we fail to recognize our sin, when we fail to rectify the problem and we fail to rebound, and we fail, and we fail big time. So we must accept responsibility for our sins. And our failure cannot be done without humility since an arrogant person has an unrealistic self-image. He doesn't think he's failed. The arrogant man thinks he's fine. The arrogant man's so busy judging other people that he thinks he's actually fine, and he doesn't realize that it's a sin to gossip, it's a sin to malign, it's a sin to complain, it's a sin to slander, and he's doing all of that because he doesn't like what someone in the church is doing. Genesis 3, 11 and 12, and he said, this is God speaking to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? And then Adam said, the woman, the woman who you gave to me, she made me do it. She, she gave me the tree and I ate it. That's not taking responsibility. That's blaming it on someone else. If we don't accept responsibility for our sin, recognize our sin, rebound our sin, we are never going to advance.
David recognized his sin. David rectified the problem when he rebounded his sin. And it's critical that you and I do the same thing. So in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, then the Lord has put away your sin and you will not die. And that has to do with Bathsheba and killing her husband, Uriah the Hittite. David did not try to rationalize his actions by making excuses. His orientation to grace can be seen in Psalm 51 where he rebounded when he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my sins, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression to you. My sin is always before me against you, and you only did I sin, and I've done this evil in your sight. How about you? When's the last time you recognized your sin and rectified the situation? by rebounding your sin, going to God and admitting your sin. Whether it's a mental attitude sin, such as hatred and bitterness and antagonism, whether it's a sin of the tongue, such as slander, maligning, gossiping, lying, or it might be an overt sin, such as stealing, or adultery, or fornication. Whatever that sin, when's the last time you went to God and you admitted your sin? Because until you do that, you will never move one inch ahead in the Christian life. And you will constantly be under the barrage of discipline from the Supreme Court of Heaven, trying to get your attention before you destroy yourself. God will discipline you because he loves you. Those whom God loves, he disciplines. Hebrews 12 tells us that in verse 6. So if things are going a little rough for you today... If things are not looking all that chippy for you today, then the question is why? Is it some self-induced misery or is it the hand of God bringing discipline into your life? What exactly is it? Because until you figure it out, you're going to have a rough road to hoe. God loves you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will restore you. But you have to take responsibility for your sin, and you have to admit it to God today and not hide it. That's called rebound. That is the first problem-solving device we have in the flat line of our soul. I hope you remember it. Don't forget it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all wrongdoing. Until next week, this is your host, Rick Hughes saying thank you for stopping by and listening to The Flatline today. Thank you for listening to The Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.